Good morning. Happy Sabbath. We are almost at the end of a trimester, which is to say we are almost at the end of a journey, a journey that has led us through the book of Hebrews and through an epistle that is claiming Jesus's unique status as both a sacrificial lamb, a high priest, and the mediator of a new covenant. All of our study has been building up to a key moment, a key moment in history when God's kingdom will emerge unshakable. And today, today we take a look at this idea of the unshakable kingdom. But before we do, as we do every Sabbath, let's bow our heads and ask God's presence to accompany us as we open his word. Can I invite you to pray? God, thank you so much for your many blessings. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your companionship. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you for your care and your concern over us. And so we pray that you may stay with us, not only as we converse and as we dialogue, but also as we claim our citizenship in the kingdom that is unshakable. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. There's something about being the citizen of a country. And there's something very unique about being citizens of this country. If you've traveled anywhere outside of the U.S., you know that there are certain things that characterize U.S. tourists. I say this as a group of our colleagues are out in the Holy Land, and I can chuckle at thinking about them carrying those fanny packs, big fo photos and cameras in hand as they talk about how their country is the best. Not that we have any obnoxious tourists on our team, but still, there is something very unique about being American. It's almost as, as if we possess a myopic view of the world where, where we fail to realize that we are part of a global village. I remember being in Europe a few years ago, and without even opening my mouth, people coming up to me and complaining about the current president at that time. It was strange because I never thought I looked very American, at least not uh, a traditional picture of what an American citizen might look like, at least in the, in the eyes of people around the world. And yet there was something about me. There was something about me. Maybe it was the way I walked or the way I carried myself that identified me as a citizen of this country. Now, I wonder, I wonder if that same way of talking or carrying ourselves, I wonder if that same sure stride that we possess as members of the most powerful country in the world is something that we can claim in our spiritual life. I wonder if there's something that distinguishes us of, as citizens of a kingdom. Maybe it's the way you talk or the way you carry yourself. Maybe it's beyond your comportment and it has to do with the way you treat others. But I think that all that we've been talking about this quarter means nothing if there isn't something special about us as a chosen people, as an elected crowd, as a remnant nation. Is there something as citizens of an unshakable kingdom 
that defines us as unique. Well, today we talk about this idea of the unshakable kingdom. And in doing so, we begin to close uh, the chapters on and the stories that are written throughout the epistle to the Hebrews. Today, we focus primarily on the last part of the 12th chapter. It is a passage that begins with verse 18. And what we're going to do today is we're simply going to read it through. And then there's two points that I want uh, to highlight before we invite Joey in to join us as he gets ready to also display his full American status in the Holy Land. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. It says, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. And the sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to the God the judge of all, till the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably, with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. I love the poetic rhythm that the author of Hebrews utilizes as he concludes his exhortation to a church that continues to wonder what place and position they play in the role of this divine drama. And from the very outset, the author has told us that we are on a journey. And as we look weary-eyed and bleary at chapter 12, verse 18, we recognize that the journey is close to end. You have come, it says, to a mountain. And again, it's almost as if the author is picking up all those motifs from the beginning of his epistle to clue us into this idea of trekking and traveling. Finally, you have come to a mountain. And in the mind of the reader, the images of Sinai are echoing. This vision of a covenant and a people invited to partake in a personal relationship with Yahweh. The view of clouds. The apathetic and frightening lightning and thunder. The rumbling earth and the fence around the holy mountain, the promise that whoever comes into God's presence will perish. 
and the fear and tremor in the voices of those Israelites who have been drawn to the desert to construct a new relationship with God, even as they say, Moses, please, you be our mediator. Moses, we can't bear to hear the voice of God, so won't you translate for us? There's something heart-wrenching about the scene. All their aspirations, all their hopes, all their joys, their wonder, and that vision that beguiles them is threatened. And it's not threatened because of the Egyptians. After all, their chariots lie at the bottom of the sea. No, it's threatened by their own fear, their own misunderstanding of what moves God, and their own need for a mediator, somebody to come between them, for they are afraid. I wonder if in our journey, in our attempt to claim citizenship in the kingdom that is unshakable, that place is also put in peril by our fear. Maybe our need for mediation. Often we put Yahweh and Christ in, oppos in opposition to each other. It's our fear and our lack of understanding that drives that opposition. But I digress. Because that journey to Sinai is but a mere representation of the journey that every single human being has been invited to partake in. It's a journey that goes beyond a decalogue, beyond the establishment of an earthly kingdom, beyond the promise of a land, beyond the completion of covenant. It is a promise that hinges upon the incarnation and the reality of Jesus you see, for the author of Hebrews, all of Scripture has been leading to this point, to this idea of the second coming, the moment where we will finally see with our own eyes the heavenly city. Now, it's clear that what begins in verse 22 is a prolectic statement that means that the author is envisioning something that has not yet occurred. But what strikes me as incredible is the certainty with which he or she pens the epistle. And there is no doubt that we will see the heavenly city. There is no doubt that we will see the thousands upon thousands of angels assembled. There is no doubt that we will worship in the church of the firstborn. No doubt that Jesus will mediate a new covenant. And then he talks about blood. You know, this idea that blood has been sprinkled. And again makes a comparison with what has happened in the story of the Old Testament. He compares the blood of Jesus and the blood of Abel. Now, if you remember all the way back in Genesis, when humanity showed the levels of depravity and violence, the dehumanizing nature of sin, Abel's blood cried out. Abel's blood cried out to witness to a relationship that had been broken, a life steeped in violence, the vulnerability of those who are weak. Abel's blood called out for justice. And here at the end of the journey, 
In this proleptic and prophetic statement, the author of Hebrews says, while Abel's blood calls justice, Jesus' blood calls mercy. While Abel's blood calls out and says, how long? Jesus' blood says, it is finished. While Abel's blood reminds us of the dehumanizing and destructive nature of sin, Jesus' blood invites us to consider the intoxicating possibility that in God's blood we have the opportunity for restoration. No doubt, Jesus comes to mediate a better covenant because Jesus' blood holds the most value within the economy of salvation. But the Christian religion isn't just a belief system based on blood. It is a belief system that uses the imagery of sacrifice, the imagery of a lamb that has been slain and restored now to sit at the right side of the Father in order to exert influence over us. You see, the whole purpose of the cross, Jesus' sacrifice, the blood that is sprinkled over the mercy seat. The whole purpose of incarnation is you. You are the protagonist of the story. Everything that God does is intended to evoke a response from you. What response is God looking for? Well, verse 25 tells us. It tells us that fear And misunderstanding of God, looking at God as punitive or violent, looking at at God as foreign, looking at God as a God who is judgmental and who pushes us towards division and fear-mongering leads only to death. But dwelling in the presence of that God, participating in his invitation, that, that provides a firm foundation for our life. Yes, the words of God will make the earth shake, but in the mind of the author of Hebrews, that is a good thing. Yeah, you know, the shaking of the earth means the destruction of all the institutions and systems created by human beings in order to continue harming human beings. Those institutions must be laid bare. They must be destroyed. They must be denuded. Because God is ready to establish something that cannot be shaken. Something that will serve as a firm foundation for eternity. A kingdom that cannot change and will not change. A kingdom that has you as a citizen. In the whole drama of salvation, let me repeat this again. You are a protagonist. And so as the earth shakes, and as institutions and systems fade away, God is inviting you today to say yes to the promise of Jesus. How are we to respond to this? To this decision that God has called us to consider not only today, but for the rest of our lives. Well, the author of Hebrews says, 
that at the end of the journey, there are only two things you can do if you want to respond in the affirmative. Be thankful and worship. So why are we called to thanksgiving and to thankfulness? Well, we, call to thanks, we are called to thanksgiving because we recognize that it is Jesus's crying, spilled blood that has made the path possible. It is Jesus' sacrifice that has made it possible for us to be co-heirs and citizens of this kingdom. How do we respond to this gift? Thankfulness. And thankfulness then ought to lead to worship. Not worship that is intended to placate a deity. Not worship that is intended to calm our anxiety or our fear of the future, but rather worship that responds in an awestruck way to the wonder of a God who says, you, you are the protagonist of the story. And so as we combine thanksgiving and awe, we recognize that God is a consuming fire. And so today, Today, as we think about what it means to be citizens of the kingdom, the invitation is simple. The invitation is that same invitation that was made to the church that this epistle was written to. It was that we keep in mind that the kingdom that God has come to establish is more palpable than any of the systems and the institutions that we have created. And that if we need and desire to be participants of that kingdom, the simple thing that we need to do today is allow God to consume us. The old Christian church had a term for this. They called it kenosis. The word itself means that God empties himself. That the sacrifice that the author of Hebrews is talking about is a self-emptying sacrifice. God empties himself in order to fill himself with us. And today, today the God that consumes you is as asking, empty yourself so that he may fill you. And then, as you worship in thanksgiving, claim your status as a citizen of the kingdom. Joey, uh, you're going to be going to the land of milk and honey. Mm. Um, how does that? How does that strike you? Oh, I'm so excited! So excited to go. <laughs> it's I didn't fully grasp um, until I went the first time. Uh, what a spiritual experience it is mm -hmm. to go. Uh, I like how one pastor put it, going to the Holy Land. Um, I used to read the Bible in black and white. Now I see it in color, mm. right? There's just something about being there, seeing the places where all these incredible acts of God happen that you can't help but be moved. So mm. that's, yeah, I'm very excited about that. Now, Joey, like me, you are not the typical image that rushes to a foreigner's mind when they think of an American. 
Um, can do people realize that you're? Is there something about you that makes people realize when you're out of the country that you're actually from America, or does that just <laughs> happen to me? You know, that's interesting that you say that because I remember when I was in high school, went on a mission trip, and um, the people who were training us for these international mission trips, they told us that we were all of us were Korean American, and they told us that we had a unique. Um, we had unique access because we carried an American passport, which is the at that time was the most powerful passport in the world. You could access the most countries with this passport, but you didn't look like an American, so you didn't have to carry all those stereotypes that sometimes come with that. Um, and so they said that you know you have a unique way of getting into the country, but still being perceived as being part of the people that you you enter to. Uh, I, I think that as soon as I open my mouth and start speaking, people realize that I'm American. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Initially, when they see me, they don't know what to what mm. to make of me. Well, the the funniest thing is, and I'm thinking about about you traveling to to the Middle East here in a couple couple hours. Um, I am shocked by the capacity that people have, particularly in Arab states, to recognize. Mm where you're from and yeah. so they uh by the way they speak a lot of languages yeah. um and so you'll see them outside of the marketplace and immediately um they will notice that i'm an american but they will also notice what my hispanic heritage is and i think mm. that has to do with uh with just people gazing mm. for as for as long as as they do and so there are certain things i think that distinguish us. Mm. Um, when I was asking one of our tour guides in Jordan, what was it about us that made us different? He said, oh, you Americans walk like you own, like you own the ground. <laughs> and I didn't know what that meant, but he says that there's a very typical American walk that gives us away. Mm. That struck me as I was reading today's passage and today's lesson as he talks about this idea of the unshakable kingdom. Is there something mm. that we can do that allows people to identify us as citizens of mm. the unshakable kingdom even before we open our mouths? And if so, how can we walk around this world like we own it? Yeah, that's that's I love that imagery because really the unshakable kingdom, the idea of being not being moved and being being unshakable, it it harkens to this idea of trust, right? When we have faith in God, when we have trust in God throughout the Old Testament, this imagery is used over and over that we are like a tree that is rooted by the water, that we can't be moved, that we will not be shaken. So yeah, there is a sense that you, there's a confidence that seems to stem from this faith and trust in God. So I, I love the imagery that you're using there mm. to, to show that. Yeah. Mm. So there's, there's in the lesson, right, we, we start at Sinai, which seems like it's where most of all of the stories in the mind of authors that are writing with a Jewish mindset mm. in, in view um, Judaism, after all, can be read through the lens of exile or exodus. And so the author of Hebrews chooses the lens of exodus to begin to develop this, this motif of a journey, or to, I should say to bring this motif to a close. Mm. He talks a little bit about fear and trepidation in mm. exodus. 
Is there something or is there a place, and I, I, I'm asking because I wrestled with this this week as I was thinking about our conversation, is there a place mm. for fear mm. within our faith confessions? It mm. seems like that uh, em emotion comes out at the very core of what he begins to write as he talks about this Exodus experience. Yeah, that's a great question. That's the same question that I had when I was reading this because if you read through the passage in Deuteronomy, Right where it describes describes God um, God coming and and speaking to the Israelites. Moses describes and he says, "You all were in so such awe and fear of hearing God. You asked me to be the mediator." And God says in Deuteronomy that what they ask for is good, mm -hmm. right? And that he hopes they always have that kind of fear so that they would always be faithful to the covenant. So there seems to be a sense, at least in Deuteronomy, that God was pleased with their fear. And that seems a little antithetical because mm -hmm. in this passage in Hebrews, it's almost like the writer of Hebrews is using that moment to say, you were afraid, and so you shied away from the connection that you could have had from God. You could have approached boldly. Is he just saying that because now the new covenant is is in place and that, that changes the dynamics between us and God? Or, like you said, is there still a place for fear? I don't know. I, I do think that there might be a place for fear because at the end of um, verse um, 28, it says, Offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Mm -hmm. So there is that aspect of being overwhelmed by God and being in awe of God mm -hmm. that, that is in place there. So, Yeah, I, I to tell you the truth, it, it, was, it was kind of disconcerting because as you mentioned, you have this passage in both Deuteronomy and Exodus that are talking about kind of God expecting certain things and actually even giving instructions for people not to come too close. Mm -hmm. Unless uh, they perish. And here in Hebrews, the author does some, I, I would say, some pretty liberal exegesis with that and says, no, 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 you missed, you missed out on an opportunity, as, mm -hmm. as you're mentioning. And so I was trying to figure out where that balance was. And then I realized hmm. that in the Jewish mindset, the concept of fear is different than the than in the Greek mindset in the Western mm. mi mindset the concept of fear. So you know Greek uh, Greek fear is phobos and mm. it's where we get this idea of phobia from and so um, it's it's very much bled into our Western understanding uh, understandings of fear mm. something that you that petrifies you you want to keep away. Um, in the Eastern understanding or the near near Eastern Semitic understanding fear is a little bit different. Because it, it isn't so much uh, an emotion as mm. it is a recognition. Mm. And so for, for the Semitics, yes, you also have to keep a distance, but you're not keeping a distance because you have this emotional reaction to an event mm. that is quote-unquote frightening, but rather it's because you recognize that, that, this, that you want to keep this distance because that which is is different than what you are. Hmm. And so fear for the Semitics isn't really the same thing as fear for, for the Greeks or even for us Westerners where I want to keep it away because you're terrifying me. Hmm. Rather, it's I want to create separation because we're different. Hmm. And so I think we lose some of that nuance hmm. because this Old Testament story is translated and read now with the lens of uh, the Greek language and that then bleeds in to our uh, Western understandings. 
But it seems like there is a place for fear mm. of that sort. Um, Emil Brunner calls it the realization that God is holy other, mm. both holy H. O-L-Y, and then holy with a W at the beginning. So God is different from us. And so there needs to be that recognition that God is a creator and we are creatures. Mm. That's much more in line with the Semitic understanding of what fear would have been. Wow. So then the writer of Hebrews is kind of pushing back on the Greek, the Western idea of um, phobos or fear, but um, embracing the the Hebrew understanding of fear with this statement of awe and reverence right. because you understand that God is wholly other. He is completely different from us. And so that's why he deserves to be worshipped and, uh, and, 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 and put in awe. Yeah. 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 And it seems like it seems then that there is no dichotomy or then it seems like this dichotomy that we've created between mm. the father and the son isn't a problem for the text. And so you wonder, well, why isn't this tension being kind of resolved within the text? Because you have God the Father, whom you're afraid of, and then you have God the Son, uh, Jesus, who's your friend. Um, well, that tension isn't there because you're supposed to have fear, uh, this sense of awe and reverence, which I think is a much better translation, uh, both to the Father and to the Son. Mm. And so that is the, the the difference between the sacrifice of the Son and any other sacrifice mm. is what gives you the capacity then to re react to that with a recognition of Jesus' holy otherness. Wow, wow. So then there is no difference between God and 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 God the Father and God the Son because they're both supposed to be our friends, but they're both also supposed to be reverenced. They're supposed to be respected. They're supposed to be, we're supposed to be in awe when we're in their presence. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So then we move, Joey, to this idea of from the from the notion of fear in the Old Testament, we move to this idea, very platonic, mm. which is a masterful gymnastic job that he does, because like we said, he uses these Greek terms, he rebaptizes mm. them, and then he goes back to this very platonic understanding of the world. So he says, hey, there's two cities, right? There's a promised land, mm. which is palpable, but that's just a representation of this imp of this other city, this this Zion, this New Jerusalem that mm. God has come to found, and that's what's really more palpable and more real in a sense yeah. than than the material. Very very platonic, but he makes the case that participation in that new kingdom mm. is only available through it through the incarnation of Jesus. Mm. And as I'm reading this, uh, you and I have had this conversation before. I'm wondering how we, as, as Christians who are called to be citizens, not only of the kingdom, but of a global village that is here, how do we react to this to the potential of Christian exceptionalism? So if this better kingdom mm. can only be accessed through Jesus, mm. does that give us... Uh, some license for Christian tr exceptionalism or triumphalism? Mm, that's a good question. I do think that there there definitely seems to be an aspect throughout Scripture of a chosenness, of a, um, if you want to use the word exceptionalist uh, mindset, that, that there is something special about these people that God has called and chosen. However, every time God seems to do this, and I've been reading through Deuteronomy, 
Um, Fun. Yeah. <laughs> but every time he, t- he, he tells the Israelites, you are a chosen people, he follows that immediately with, but you're only chosen because I chose mm. you. It's not because you were special. It's not because you were greater than other nations. It's not because you were had more powerful armies. Like he goes through this whole list of why they're not special, um, even though they are special because they're chosen. So yes, there is something special about being chosen, but I wouldn't say it's something that we can take pride in as, as in, oh, God chose me because mm. I am special. No, God's choosing us makes us special. Mm. And the whole message of the gospel seems to be that God chooses everyone. God wants everyone to be a part of this community of faith. And so I, I do think that there is some of that, um, mm. that that chosen aspect, but maybe not not pride mm-hmm. so much in, in being chosen. So Christian exceptionalism without the triumphalism. Yes. I, I love I love that notion. And it seems to bear out in the text. Mm. Because he moves on from talking about these two cities to talking about the way in which this other covenant has been initiated. Mm -hmm. And he compares this idea of Abel Mm -hmm. with the idea of the blood of Jesus. And he says, look, the the blood of Abel did something, um, but the blood of Jesus does something greater. And so I'm wondering if the blood of Abel is crying out for mm-hmm. justice, um, what is what is the blood of Jesus, what is the blood of Jesus' response to those cries, which I think are very valid? I think too often mm-hmm. we ignore pleas for justice mm-hmm. and for relief. Uh, we're seeing how horrible the humanitarian crisis is in the Ukraine, and I can... I'm I'm sure that the blood of Abel's continuing to cry from the ground. Yeah. Justice, justice. Mm. And so my question as as I again as I kind of was wrestling with these really rich verses was okay so if, does that mean that there is no place for claims of justice vis-a-vis the blood of Jesus or how is the interplay mm. between the blood of Jesus and those in those cries for justice? Well, you know First of all, I thought the writer of Hebrews was so poetic. I love how you said that, that he was so poetic um, in this in this section where he talks about uh, Abel's blood crying out, using that imagery to say that Jesus's blood speaks more effectively, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's just a beautiful interplay that he did, but it is very poetic, so he doesn't like go into it. And so this is what I mean Mm -hmm. by this imagery, right? He doesn't do that. And he sort of leaves it to the readers to try to figure that out. But I love how, you know, as, as, as poetic as the author of Hebrews was, I love what you did here because what you just did was so poetic too, because then you've taken Abel's blood and then applied it to the blood of every single person who has ever been killed unjustly, every single person who has suffered injustice, and all of that blood is crying out. It's crying out and saying, where, who, who is going to speak up for me? Who is going to stand up, up for me? And at the same God that spoke in Abel's time, who spoke up and heard the cries of Abel's blood and spoke out, that same God not only came to speak out for justice, but also, like you said, 
spoke out for mercy. Mm. And so the response is not just justice, but also mercy, both for the person who was, um, who suffered injustice and the person who committed injustice as well. God speaks out to both. And that's why his blood is so much more effective than the blood of Abel. Oh, wow. See that? Now that is a theological nugget that I think we, we forget at our own peril. Mm. Which leads me then to this other really interesting motif that appears in the text. So like we said, uh, the author of Hebrews has been driving this narrative with the imagery of a journey. Mm -hmm. And so with, in, the Greek language, in the Greek, he starts this section and then again in verse 22 with, with this introduction, therefore, he mm -hmm. says, um, and what I find fascinating is it's it's kind of reminding us of this journey motif. Mm. But then at, towards the end, and our lesson has the title, The Unshakable Kingdom, he introduces this motif that hasn't really been that present, which yeah. is the idea of a kingdom. I mean, there's a little bit mm. uh, within in, in the first chapter as he talks about uh, the priesthood of Melchizedek, who's both a king and a priest. But then he leaves that, he puts a pin in that, and mm -hmm. puts a pin in the idea of a scepter all the way in the beginning of the book, and then moves us now to this idea of a kingdom and mm -hmm. connects it with the blood of Jesus. And that's what I find mm -hmm. so powerful. Mm -hmm. Because yes, the blood of Jesus is crying mercy, mm -hmm. but the blood of Jesus is crying mercy because the idea of justice is already implied. Mm -hmm. Because Jesus is not only the mediating sacrifice, mm -hmm. Jesus is the king of this unshakable kingdom. Mm -hmm. He's told us that in, in the beginning of, of the epistle. So I, I think that it's going to take a lot of effort mm -hmm. on our part uh, to have these two pictures of Jesus mm -hmm. that get developed throughout the New Testament. The picture of, yes, the the one whose blood screams out mercy, mm -hmm. and yes, the sacrificial lamb, but also the kingly lion. Mm -hmm. These imageries, the, this imagery that seems to be disparate, somehow in the mind of the author of Hebrews is connected. Mm -hmm. And this is what gives Jesus the capacity to say, hey, my kingdom is better than any other kingdom. My sacrifice is better than any other sacrifice because it is the perfect interplay between justice and mercy, between mm. uh, the capacity to bring things together and offer forgiveness, but also offer relief and compassion to those who have been hurt. Wow, that's so true. I mean, God does that so often throughout scripture, doesn't he? He, he takes two imageries that seem to be opposites but say that they are actually not contradictory, mm -hmm. that they are in one in, in, in God, this idea of justice and mercy, this God, the idea of human and divine, right? This, and actually, um, the book that we've been reading as a staff, um, Believing is Seeing, um, Michael um, Gillian, mm -hmm. he writes about how actually the most profound truths are the transcendental truths that that actually the opposite of it is not actually false but also true mm -hmm. right and so that those are the deepest truths in the in the universe are the ones that can, can that that have two almost contradictory concepts merged into one that something is both a particle and a wave how can it be both? Those are supposed to be opposites, but yet they're the same. And and God is that. God God shows that over and over again that He is able to bring together 
both justice and mercy in a way that is so profound, so beautiful. And without it, we would be lost. Mm. Yeah, it's it's that paradox of belief. Mm. I think that that inspires us. It's that paradox of belief that allows us to navigate what we know and then mm. also that allows us to be humble about the things that we don't know. Uh, he talks about this imagery of kingdom in such a powerful way. He says it's unshakable. Mm -hmm. And this kingdom fills the whole earth. And um, the, the idea and the imagery in, uh, is that the kingdom is unshakable because it's eternal. It, mm -hmm. it will never end. And then he says, but it's a city. And so you have... You have this, this notion of, wait, how can a kingdom that is all-encompassing also be a city? And it strikes me that often the book, uh, the book, and not just Hebrews, but any book of the Bible, presents the comfort that the reader needs in the circumstances that the reader has and is going through and mm. the words that the that the reader needs as a balm to her his heart because Rome was the ultimate expression of a kingdom that was unshakable mm. and that was all encompassing and that was worldwide and the city itself was a representation mm. of everything uh, that that kingdom stood for. Mm -hmm. And so it seems, again, that the author is in a, in a very nuanced and, and almost a hidden way trying to say, yeah, I know that you guys think that Rome is this ultimate expression of a kingdom, but really what is real isn't uh, the Colosseum. Mm. What is real isn't uh, the emperor and uh, the city and the agora, what is real is this, this kingdom that you can't see, that you can't touch, that you can't taste, but that you can feel in a real way. And that kingdom constantly is trying to break into our reality. Mm -hmm. And we ignore it at our own peril. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I mean, think about you know, that imagery of Rome how how for the for the readers of hebrew how rome was just it was incomprehensible to think that the romans wouldn't always be in power mm -hmm. they were just so strong and their their control was so absolute and their government was so stable that you just did not think that that would ever fall apart and i wonder if we have those thoughts now you know we 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 sometimes think of you know the united states as being mm. this superpower you know dominant in um the economy and um in world policy and all of those things but you know the united states has only really been a superpower i mean compared to rome it's it's only a fraction of right. the time right, right. and and uh, you know we can already see how some of, of the United States dominance in a lot of different areas are, are sort of starting to fade and the rest of the world catching up, uh, which I'm not saying is a totally bad thing, but we, we see that already happening. And yet, yet these things that we trust in, that we believe in, that we think are so stable, actually, they're not. Mm. They can be shaken. And that is, that is the ultimate uh, consequence here that God says that there's going to be a time of shaking coming and all those things that you put that we put our trust in all those institutions that we put our faith in 
those will be shaken. Mm. And the only things that will not be shaken, I love this imagery because this is what we started with, is are, are those people who have put their trust in God. Mm. Right? Yeah, that's so well said. This idea of shaking then leads us, I think, to the last piece that brings, I think, this whole chapter, or this whole section of the chapter together, which is he says, look, the earth and the sky will shake. And what he's talking about is everything that we see, the whole material world, right? He's not talking about heaven as in the realm of the gods. He's talking about everything that we can see. Mm. All of that will shake. And the reason why it's going to shake, as you mentioned, is because these institutions that we've created are mm. not going to last forever. And then he says, make sure that you're choosing wisely. Mm. And he introduces a section that I that to be honest I I felt a, a bit distressing which is which is the idea of judgment I mean mm. we we talk a lot and we love to talk about grace mm. and we love to talk about God's love and God's mercy and God's understanding and God's long suffering and any other adjective we want to add but he he decides to end this this particular pericope by saying hey make sure you build on something that is unshakable mm. because if you build on shaky ground judgment is coming mm. how do we make peace with with this idea of of judgment uh particularly since we've seen the damage that too much focus on judgment can have for for individuals and for church communities yeah you know, it's so interesting because the author of Hebrews in this section talks about God as the judge and does it in a way that it makes it sound like it's good news, mm -hmm. right? Which typically we don't think going before a judge is good news. <laughs> typically when we go before a judge, it's very reluctantly that we're dragged before a judge. And yet, so I was trying to think what context, in what context is judgment good news? Mm. Are, are there scenarios where judgment is good news. I could think of one. I'd love to hear from you uh, um, any other. I, I guess one context that I think where judgment could be good news is if you are the oppressed, mm -hmm. you know? If you're the oppressed and you want someone to speak up and step in, then judgment is good news because that means that somebody who's stronger than you can actually stop the oppression that you can't stop on your mm -hmm. own, right? So I think in that kind of context, judgment can be good news. But I don't know, Miguel, can you think of other contexts or situations where judgment might be good news? I, I think I think you, you've hit it on the head. Um, I think if, if you have been harmed, uh, then you're expecting the system, right, mm. to restore uh, the balance as, if, as it were. So when I was thinking about shaking, I wasn't thinking about judgment so mm. much as I was thinking about resolution. Mm. And um, I thought a little bit about the last economic crisis we had mm. um, in 2008. So if you remember, uh, we had this economic crisis that had to do with subprime mortgages. Mm. And institutions that seemed to be operating at record profits, Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, all these mm. institutions that had been around for decades um, and that looked at least to investors to have record profit margins and be very safe investments were really built on shaky ground. Mm -hmm. And you didn't need to be a genius 
to know that. You just needed to pay attention to what was happening, right? Mm -hmm. So I remember uh, being out of college and uh, getting offers uh, to have to qualify for a mortgage before I had a job. <laughs> and I didn't understand how that worked. Now, I wasn't an economy major, mm -hmm. but I did understand, I, they did teach me, they did teach us at La Sierra, <laughs> at least enough to know that you need it before you take a loan out, you need to have a job to make sure that you repay that loan. Mm -hmm. And so with my very, very limited understanding of, econ of economy, I said, well, this is not a good idea. And then I would hear story after story mm -hmm. about people who were extended these incredible loans um, that had no realistic way of paying back the loan. Mm -hmm. And then um, people got nervous, particularly investors got really nervous because uh, all of these institutions that seemed really solid mm -hmm. collapsed. Mm -hmm. And so is it really the, the fact that there is kind of some divine god of capitalism that, that said, well, the markets have determined that you are the weakest link, Freddie Mae and uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, or mm. is it simply that for all its strength and stability, mm -hmm. we were building on ground that was shaky? And, and might that be what God is talking about mm. as it pertains to people that that believe in institutions and in systems, they might look like really like they're really strong. But the lesson uh, talks a little bit about Daniel this week, and I just thought about that imagery, right? Of the mm -hmm. of the toes made out uh, that are partly clay, right? They <laughs> look really solid, and they do everything that a toe is supposed to do, but they're fragile because they're built on flaky ground. Wow! Wow! So this, this shaking is just revealing what has always been there. It's not like God is making these systems fragile. These systems are fragile. We just haven't recognized how fragile they are. Mm -hmm. And instead of building on these fragile systems, building our lives on those, we should be building on an eternal kingdom and an eternal God and a God that is firm and in whom we will not be moved. Oh, Joey, that's a wonderful way to close us off, my friend. Have a wonderful trip. We'll see you. Uh, hopefully you bring back some pictures to share from the kingdom, uh, the kingdom of Jordan, that is. Um, and may God really go with you. May you have a blessed time over there. May God be with Sarah and, and your girls. And we're just waiting to hear. I know our viewers are going to want to hear about all your adventures. But before we let you go, uh, might you pray with us? Good and gracious God, we want to thank you so much for being a God of stability. When all of the world around us seems to be shaking with, with war, with disease, with loss and death, you are the one constant. And so we ask that you give us the confidence to build our lives on you, not on all these other systems that we have seen time and time again are shakable, are movable, are breakable, but to rest ourselves, to root ourselves on the eternal kingdom that is yours. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So citizens of the kingdom, amidst this shaky week, may you build on Christ, the solid rock. See you next week. Thank you.